This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. You're listening to the Mostly Harmless Podcast. At least you better be. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mostly Homeless Podcast. I'm your host, Damon Damien. All right, buddies. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, am I excited for today's episode because today's very special episode comes to you from Dink, Denver's Independent Comics and Arts Expo. It was held on March 24th and 25th in the beautiful and historic Sherman Street Event Center right here in Denver. I was fortunate enough that uh, it was the first year of Dink. These guys didn't know any better, so I got to con my way in and got to host a handful of panels. In today's episode, we're sharing with you one of those panels, and I got to host a uh, handful of panels this weekend, and all of them were super fun, super cool, and totally unexpected in the directions and paths they went. But this one, this one holds a special place in my heart. It's not every day you get to sit back and chat with some of your very favorite comic book creators. And now I'm not talking about the guys who are drawing superhero comic books. I'm talking about the guys who do a little bit more smaller, more personal work. Um, guys who are following the footsteps of like Harvey Picar, R. Crumb, um, and the list goes on and on and on. These are the more black and white, independent, awesome comics. You know, not the superhero Marvel stuff. And so I get to sit back and I get to chat with some of my favorite comic book creators i get to sit back with guys uh joel christian gill box brown ben toll and nate powell and the panel that we're that i got the host for today's episode is the process of historical comics and their icons now what that what that means is we get to sit back and talk about biographical comic works these guys are really 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 great books um we'll talk about those all in the in the episode here today and man it was such a good, fun chat. Uh, the chat only comes into about 35, 36 minutes when we could have easily talked for an hour or two more. Um, don't worry. I do sit down and chat a little bit more with Box Brown and Nate Powell. I didn't make it uh, to Ben Toll's table to talk to him some more in a little one-on-one interview, but maybe I'll give him a call on the phone and we'll make that happen soon. Um, but still, um, when we originally pitched this panel, I was told there would be a PA in the room uh, to record directly off of. But unfortunately, those plans fell through. And there wasn't a PA. It was a small room. And it was just uh, us talking to the uh, very wonderful little audience. And so this recording comes direct off of my Zoom handheld recorder. Now, unfortunately, there's some kind of design flaw in the Zoom handheld recorders where two out of every 10 times, it unfortunately picks up audio interference from your cell phone. I have a brand new Samsung cell phone operating on like some kind of 4 5G signal and I'm pretty sure that's the slight hum that you're going to hear throughout the entirety of this chat, not to mention me uh, knocking it over on the table a couple times. Um, I edited the audio as good as I could do it with my amateur skills. I've got another buddy uh, giving a shot and maybe uh, we can get a little bit better audio quality uh, from a professional, but unfortunately there is a slight hum uh, that goes through 
throughout this whole episode, but I did edit it enough that I think this will go pretty well without you really, really getting annoyed or noticing. Again, my apologies to everyone on board. Um, I, this was just too good a chat not to share, and I definitely uh, had to flip a coin. Do I post this or do I... Uh, throw it in the trash can forever so we decided to go ahead and throw it up on the internet and hopefully it's not too bad that you uh that it gives you a headache before we get to that chat let's uh, go ahead and thank our sponsors at ratio Beerworks, ratio 2920 larimer street here in the uh river north rhino district of denver uh congratulations on those guys they just won a, a ton of Westward Awards for being one of the best new breweries in Denver. Please check them out, RatioBeerWorks.com. I highly recommend the Repeater and maybe uh, maybe their Domestica. Really, really solid beers from really, really solid dudes, and they do a whole lot for this show. Um, thank those guys so much. Uh, they even were kind enough to let us do a uh, Dink Presents Mostly Harmless Live uh, talk show event that you can check out on mostlyharmlesspodcast.com. So uh, n- more special thanks, of course, go to my good buddy Jim Norris at Mutiny Information Cafe. Um, he helped me get in good with the Dink guys, Charlie LaGracia, Amy at Tsunami PR, and the rest of the Dink crew. Thanks for helping set this show up and make it happen. And tune in later this week when I'll have uh, one-on-one interviews up with Nate Powell, Box Brown, and a handful of other great people I met at Dink. And then um, I've got way more coverage from Dink, including my uh, panel the history of independent the history of independent publishing in colorado as well as the alternate heroes creating outside the box that panel had my good buddy sean tiffany on there as well as jim rugg samuel tear matt allison and then a super special surprise guest mike Barron, the creator of badger as well as nexus jumped in on the panel Woo! Man, all that and tons more coming up on Mostly Harmless Podcast. Please check out MostlyHarmlessPodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. All that good stuff. We, too, just got recognized as being one of the best music podcasts in Denver. And hopefully by this time next year, you'll be seeing us get the uh, best of podcast award out of the Westward. So we'll see what happens, buddies. All right, buddies. Let's uh, let's travel back in time to Dink. And let's uh, hear this chat with, with my good buddies, Nate Powell, Box Brown, Ben Toll, and Joel Christian Gill. So hello everybody. Uh, my name is David Burford. I'm the host of a uh, punk rock talk show called Mostly Harmless. I mostly interview bands, but on occasion I get fortunate enough to interview some of my favorite comic book creators. Uh, Nate Powell, Ben Towel, Joel Gill, and Box Brett. So very excited to be hanging out here with these guys today. We're talking about a uh, Bio, biographical comic books. Hell yeah, guys. Yeah. First off, can everyone hear? Because, quick tidbit, there are extra chairs in the front. <laughs> we might as well just go around the room and introduce each other. Yeah, how's everybody doing today? Let's, let's give a quick hand. And it falls right. So guys, how are you doing? How was your trip? Your trip to Denver. I know some of you guys did not have the easiest trip in. Difficult. It's long. Yeah, in my case. I was. I got here. I left my house at three thirty this morning. Yeah. And wow. Drove to the airport, and I got here at nine a.m. this time. So it's it's bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, um, you guys are mostly well known for doing biographical comics. Um, how does how does one decide to take a step back from creating your own work to tell somebody else's story? How do you decide to just jump in and somebody else's mythos? And 
and create that for other people? Well, I know for me, like, uh, it was just like, when I do these, like, nonfiction comics, it's like something to almost entertain myself, like, because it's stuff that I'm interested in, and, like, doing research for a comic about Andre the Giant was, like, awesome. It's like, I had to, like, watch a bunch of wrestling matches and, like, interviews with wrestlers. Like, I watched, like, a 13-hour interview with Ric Flair. That was had, like, <laughs> absolutely no production value. It's just, like, his face in front of, like, a screen. He basically did, like, Andy Warhol production. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, one, like, the beginning of it, he shows up with a black eye for, for like, you know, like, no reason. He was, like, retired at the time. It was, like, 10 years ago. But anyway, but it's something I was, like, into anyway. And, like, when I started doing it, it was, like, I was doing two different things. Like, I was doing a comic, these comics, and also, like, watching documentaries and like stuff like that and researching stuff just for fun kind of and then at some point they like became like one thing where I was like oh like I want to make like a documentary film as like a comic book. I was mine was more um, because my stories that I was writing on my own were failing. Um, like just frankly it was just you know I had done this this giant comic that was sort of this like um, <clears throat> pseudo biographical like about growing up in the projects and like what that meant to grow up in the projects and like it was all this sort of um, you know like metaphor and I took it and I was at, at the time I started going to the Boston Comics Roundtable which is a group of cartoonists in Boston who they <clears throat> make work in a friend of mine Jesse Lonergan he like picks it up and it's like this is my life like my magnum opus, like I haven't had anybody look at it, I'm just making it, and I'm like, a, you know, why hasn't anybody discovered me sort of a thing? And he flips through it, and he's like, I'm like 30 pages into this, and I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so, um, and like, that was like, you know, it's, you know, I, I tell this story, and I've told it a number of times, but I was literally looking at Fox's work, and like, sort of like cyber-stalking, like, a lot of cartoonists. And, um, and so when I Googled Box Brown, I came up with the story of Henry Box Brown who was a slave who mailed himself in a box from Virginia to Philadelphia, and I sent him an email, I don't know if you remember, yeah, I sent him an email, I'm like, I know you're a white guy in Philadelphia, why do you have the name of a slave? And he says, you know, this is, um, you know, it's just like, I'm square shape, my friends call me black, but I might do a story about that guy someday. I'm like, that is a fantastic idea. I'm gonna steal that idea. <laughs> and so, and I did it, and then like a few months later, I sent him and like, see, I did this thing. And he was like, that's awesome. And so I put it together and then, um, this funny thing happened is that people started telling me other stories. Like they started, you know, I would do story of Box Brown and people would say, have you heard of Major Taylor? And I said, I've never heard of Major Taylor. And they were like, oh, he was the thing called the Black Cyclone. He was this, you know, this black um, cyclist who was a world champion and a, you know, like people just literally just tell me stories. I have like lists of stories that people would come up and tell me. And so what happened was that I would finish one and then I'd have a new story, and then I would go research that one with this, I have fantastic librarians at the school that I teach at. And so I would go into the librarians, like, do you have any information on this? And they would say, here's like 15 different pages of stuff. Or like, I remember once I was doing a story about Malacca Island, Maine, which is a, an island off the coast of Maine that was inhabited by black people, white people, and their children, and like some Native American people, and that over the course of their entire their entire existence, the, the state of Maine completely wiped them out. And basically like burned the houses, like castrated some of the people, like they interred, they reinterred the graves at the home for the feeble minded. And like they dug up the graves, it was ridiculous. 
And so I went to told the librarians that I was looking for it, and one of the librarians literally went to Maine. Because we're in New Hampshire, right? She was like, I live in Maine. I'm going to go to this library that I know, this historical society. They have this thing. And then she went up there and photocopied this entire book of first-hand documents. Wow. For it, just brought it back to me. And she was like, here you go. And I was just like, holy shit, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why the librarians are thanked in my book. Because they literally did. I mean, so like, you know, it was sort of like, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was literally like not, honestly not being able to tell my own stories and then once I found these other stories and found there were stories that hadn't been told I'm like well there's a lot of stories that haven't been told so I'll just do those yeah um, probably in my case I've done I don't know, four or five books at this point and some of them I, I guess would be some of them are more sort of towards the fantasy historical end of things some of them are straighter kind of historical fiction but I think that like one common element I guess in all these is, is like that you can like finding something real that you can latch on to that sort of starts the chain of creativity I think is really helpful it's sort of the equivalent of like of, of like there's a lot of kind of little sort of drawing exercises that, that the cartoonists sometimes do to just to get you moved away from a blank page sitting in front of your face you know like um, you're taking a scribble and trying to make a, uh, this, like, a face out of it or something and in some ways like I think that like when you have an interesting kind of you stumble on some historical thing and that kind of gives you just a, just something to start with you know like like he was saying you know you, you start like learning about one thing you know you get online and you look it up and that may lead you to some other thing to some other thing uh, and it gets you out of this mode of kind of sitting there going like well, I need a character you know what's the character that character needs an obstacle to try to get past and then the, you know then it needs to react three but, you know it's like you can kind of you have something on your plate that you can now start manipulating. You know? That's for me that like that getting over that hump is what's um, kind of sets creativity in motion for me. Like I'm just an example of my book that I'm here kind of promoting. It's a book called Oyster War. It's, it's you know not you, know, you would not handle someone as being is being history. Uh, <laughs> I my fan away. Um, but you know, the genesis of it is I was just I wasn't looking for a story idea. I was reading a book just for fun about um, the Chesapeake about um, watermen on the Chesapeake Bay, guys who catch crabs in the Chesapeake Bay, and I sort of was reading this book that was about that, and it mentioned this thing called the Oyster Wars in the Chesapeake Bay, and I'm like, well, what the heck was that? You know, so I just started looking into that and sort of filed it away. And I, these were the, from the olden days when I had an actual you know, index card file, and I was like, an idea, Oyster War, what was that? You know. And so, you know, when it came time to, like, start working on a book, I kind of flipped back there, and I was started looking at this. I was like, you know, there's some elements of this that would make for a good story. And, you know, you find that you sort of dig around in the real history, and you, at least in my case, you take some stuff and incorporate it and throw some other things out, you expand on some things. And I guess, you know, it just kind of gives, for me, it gives me a good starting point, you know. And then what you do with that depends on how close you want to stick to, you know, real history versus what you want to just use kind of a jump off. So you know, I did a I did a book about Amelia Earhart that was very important to do the real the real story. Um, and then I've done other stuff that, that was fairly important. But it is nice I think just to have something to, to kind of grab onto that gets you in motion. Uh, for me, uh, I think most of my nonfiction or historical comics are done as in the role of artist only, working with other writers. I sort of made the bridge. Uh, after I finished Swallow Me Whole and I wanted kind of a palate cleanser uh, back in 2008. So I did a couple of short stories. One was an autobiographical tale from my now wife's uh, life that dealt with some 
some local and and, and cultural issues, you know, from from the Midwest. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that sort of, but that sort of like set it set this bar in motion in terms of thinking about how other people are processing components of their own lives and how to how to as a visual artist process that information while retaining my own sense of visual storytelling. So uh, through Silence of Our Friends and March, I think that I quickly learned that my role as artist when doing these historical comics is to look within the script and find what is missing from the, the script in between the lines in terms of uh, not necessarily content and information, but the, uh, the intangible, uh, highly subjective personal qualities that make, uh, that make a tale captivating, uh, just like the weirdo fiction that I, that I cook up in my head, trying to figure out how to put myself in the shoes of someone in, in radically different circumstances that were historical. Um, so March book one, I think I was pretty heavy handed on that end until we, we developed a, a working component. So we're all approaching it from an equal standpoint. Uh, but it allowed me to, to realize that these, these, uh, these moments of anxiety and dread and these, these very uh, subjective, intimate moments that I put in my own fiction are always present in these nonfiction comics. And that was sort of my role to illuminate while learning sort of like taking myself back to school and learning the ropes of research and documentation on the sidelines, I guess. <laughs> Were you guys good students okay. beforehand going into these things? Or did this teach you how to be a better, uh, better student, make you wish you paid more attention in school? I was a terrible student. Um, <laughs> I, I like kind of, um, as a younger kid, like in elementary school, I guess I was like, everything kind of came easy to me. Like, that's the thing. I did well in school then, and then when I hit puberty, I just was like, fuck school. <laughs> and I kind of like, just kind of like, did whatever I could to kind of get by, and I ended up doing okay or whatever, but I was not a good student. It was like, I got by luckily because I like, went to class pretty often, and like, paid attention. I would never do, I would do, I would do like the bare minimum reading. I was like an English major and I would like never read the books. I was like always like failing the reading quizzes and then like read the book like the like barely read it and like concoct some sort of paper around this book that I never really read or read like a few pages of. So I don't know. I was a bad student. So you're saying the education system is a sham? <laughs> really I mean like I do have my, my uh, qualms with our education system well, for sure. So I have a master's degree, I have two undergraduate degrees, and I'm a professor and chair of my department, but I don't have a high school diploma. Um, and um, it's because they wanted me to, at this, you know, there was some girl in ninth grade that I was like, I wanted to go to high school, so I just like completely didn't go to ninth grade year. But then I came back and did all the other stuff. Um, and oddly enough, there was only one class that I needed to take, and they were like, well, you should come back and do study hall for six hours and just take this one class. And I was like 18, and I'm like, that's probably not gonna happen. <laughs> um, so I went to work in a plastic extruding molding company, and I did that. And I, you know, bought a terrible sports car at like, <laughs> like 19. The insurance was more than the car payment. And then I went back to school. And because Virginia at the time you didn't have to have a high school diploma to go to community college, I just went to community college and I got a diploma. And then decided I wanted to go to four year school. And um, and then I, but they like two weeks from, you know, class starting, they were like. 
Joel, you forgot to submit your diploma. And I'm like, I don't have one. <laughs> and they were like, well, you have an associate's degree. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't have a diploma. And they were like, well, maybe you should go to the art, to the, to the night school and see about getting a diploma. And so I went to the night school and they looked at my transcripts and they said, there's nothing we can give you. Um, how about you just take a test? And I'm like, all right, how about world history? And I'm like, cool, world history. I, I, I know world history. <laughs> so I came back and I took the test and my high school English teacher was like moonlighting at the night school. Um, and I failed it miserably. And he came back in and he goes, Joel, now that you know the wrong answer, see if you can get some of the right ones. <laughs> um, so he gave me the test back and I took it again. And he came back in with the principal of the night school and he sat down at the edge of the table. He's like, do you need a, do you need like a grade to like impress Roanoke College or do you just need a diploma? I said, I just need a diploma. Turned to the night school professor, to the night school principal, said, just give him the damn diploma. <laughs> so then I went on to become like, you know, a scholar and, you know, part of my so like awesome. at the beginning I did not like like I don't I did not earn a high school diploma but I earned all the other ones <laughs> so, um, so I wasn't a good student then and I think you know the thing about like being a student like doing the kind of stuff that, that we do I think you know it's an interesting thing that I think you have to have like a card catalog understanding it's kind of like what Ben's saying like like researching something and then like sprouting off to something else you have to have a card catalog understanding of stuff you know when little you go to the card catalog and you're looking for a book on magicians and you found this book about a magician and then they found this book about the place that had a bunch of magicians and then you found freak shows and then you found side shows and then you realize that West Virginia had an entire town of just like that's what you have to learn how to do with the internet because what happens now is people go I'm looking for you know oyster war oyster war that's all you get they don't like look at they don't like follow the breadcrumbs off into other places so I think it's just like you know, I, I struggle with that now with teaching my students to look at the internet like a card catalog. Like, you know, like don't look at Wikipedia, look at what people have sourced and then go yeah. look at that stuff. Do you find though that like this stuff comes from, like I think with my stuff it's all about teaching myself. It's like being like an autodidactic person, right? Like you're constantly, like I'm just curious by nature. And, yeah. Like, wanting to learn new things all the time. Except for the guitar, I can never sit myself down. Yeah. <laughs> I want to so bad. I just want to just do it. somebody that. I was just like, I really want to learn to play the guitar, but I just don't do like it. sit down and do it. I know. Yeah, like it's the same thing. Like you want to, like there's so much stuff that you want to learn about. You know, and then like, and with like researching the stories that I consume, they span times and places. And so it's just like, what kind of pants would they have worn at a table? You know, and what, you know, like I remember there's this one page in Tales of the Talented Tenth where... I have the beginning, and they're like, they're like shooting cans, and I'm like, were there cans at this point? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I learned that, yeah, that was like within the realm of the first actual canned food. Like, like that was probably too much, but um, I, I, when I was, I have a book about Tetris coming out in October, uh, video game Tetris, and like at one point when I first was introducing the character. I was like, let me think. Like, he was probably this type of guy. You know, like, drink because I like watch this documentary and I'm reading about it. And I'm like, he probably smoked. And I was like drawing this thing, and I was like, man, this smoke cloud would look perfect on this page. Like, he had to have smoked. But I like, <laughs> I like looked it up and I was like, Alexei Pajanov smoker. <laughs> and it's like, finally, I found this article and it's like. He was a heavy smoker and often surrounded by ashtrays. I was like, yes! <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yes, I love that visual element, you know? Uh, so, yeah, it's like all that stuff, and you go back, and it's like, well, what kind of cigarettes does he smoke? Yeah. Or, like, all this other stuff, like, 
No, he doesn't. Probably doesn't. Didn't drink coffee. He probably drank tea in Russia. You know what I mean? Like it's learning about all that little stuff, the culture things, and everything. It's just like, you know, it's just as satisfying to, to me to learn it enough to draw it. You know, I mean, it's as it may maybe it is to read it. I would hope that it is. Yeah, I was I was a reasonably good student, but I mean. I absolutely hated history, which I think is a kind of ironic since I do all these historical books now. And, it, and the reason I think the difference is exactly what these guys were talking about, which is that when I took, you know, when, you, when I took a history class, it was it was largely sort of absorbing this information that was put in front of you and then sort of regurgitating it, you know, and like, but the kind of the writing process of writing something historical involves a lot of like exploration and digging and uncovering of things and I think that's the element that that appealed to me and that, that is why I enjoy writing stuff uh, that deals with digging into history whereas I didn't really enjoy taking it like as a college class you know so I, mean, I think that there is a kind of a an element of uh, kind of activity that, that, that sort of mental activity that, that's interesting that goes along with it that, that makes it a little different than taking a history class you know you know, you're sort of you're sort of the operative agent there in a way that, that you want. It would be like a uh, like a uh, independent study or something like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Nate's gonna say how great a student he was. I was a good student. <laughs> I liked school. I also my family was you know slightly unusual. My older brother had some developmental disabilities, uh, especially at a time in which there was virtually no diagnosis for having autism on the higher range. And so he had a very difficult time in school, uh, and it sort of accentuated what a breeze school. I was kind of like given just a free pass by my parents because I did well at school. I liked it, and so I was just, you know, you just you just you just go with that. And that sort of freed me up to spend the rest of my time doing and making other things. Um, but it also, yeah, it instilled some bad habits in me. Like I stopped reading from 10th grade through the end of college. I didn't read anything. I mean, I read a couple of comics, but that's it. Um, uh, but I, I think that a lot of the, di I started gaining that discipline back after I was done with college and I was trying to develop a structure that would allow me to stop wasting my time as an adult. Um, so, I, so working, especially working on March, has been valuable in terms of kind of being able to go to school again for free uh, and it being my day job at the same time. Uh, my next book that I'm working on once I'm done with March in a couple of months um, is just a normal, you know, weirdo <laughs> book that takes place in a fictional Arkansas. But through these last few years, it's nice because it takes place in 1979 in the Ozarks and there are these these little nuggets where I'm trying to weave it into my other Arkansas-centered books, and now all of a sudden I have this skill set where, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've been fascinated by the fact that like, I come from, I also come from the underground punk scene, and Little Rock was kind of a little later than its counterparts, Memphis and Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, in terms of when bands started playing and having shows, because the Sex Pistols skipped Little Rock and they played Tulsa, and they played Memphis, and they played <laughs> Dallas and Austin or San Antonio. Um, and this is where you started to have these music scenes. And so I became fascinated with like, who are these people who saw the Sex Pistols in Oklahoma a week before they broke up? 
And so all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, are the people in this book that I'm doing, like, because I wanted to make this fake band, I was like, these are the people who went to go see the Sex Pistols this year, and now the Ozark Mountains are not ready for this, this weird Ozark punk. But then all of a sudden I can find this news footage of just like, rednecks who have had their minds shattered by seeing the Sex Pistols in Tulsa. <laughs> and I'm watching these clips, and, and they're, they're like saying good things, even. They're, like it blew their minds so much that they couldn't even be like, oh, it was terrible noise. They're like, I don't know what I just saw back in there, but I'll never be the same. <laughs> but all of a sudden, like, I, can, I can see the process of going down these, worm, these rabbit holes, and I can see it starting to finally impact my own weirdo fiction so i'm like ah oh, now there's something i can take back into the stuff that i just do without thinking about and so that's very rewarding it's totally sorry no. um it's totally influenced my fictional work like almost all the work i've been doing lately is like oh it's like if i'm not doing a real story about somebody it's like a fake story about a fake person you know what i mean like, i don't know if that I, I don't know if i'm describing that right but yeah, it's yeah. like a fake biography or something yeah. like that where he went yeah 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 <laughs> it's like a mockumentary or like i always approach i kind of just have that approach because it's just like i don't know it's just you're so used to it and it's just tr everything kind of just like it's 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 strangely valuable the way you know the way nonfiction influences your fiction mm -hmm. certainly and back and forth even it totally it, like literally totally changed like all the stuff i wanted to do after i did strange fruit and after i do like like i want to do a science fiction book that is partly based on this um idea that um the nat turner rebellion was at one point successful and what america what the american south would have looked like if those people had been like the, the people in the south like not the meek and mild people of the south that had been cowed and beaten by slavery but the people who had like literally rose up and fought and then spent years fighting so like that like and so i'm like and so with that i'm like looking at what did all like it's the same thing like you're thinking like i've got this history part that that's like important but I'm like trying to figure out what would happen, like extrapolate off. So you're like building these things. It's funny because fiction really, all fiction is is stories. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's not a fake real thing. It's just a it's story. Just a you know what I mean? Like it's just, but it's it just feels, a thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, I like these ideas of like following the history of something over the course of time and like how it's just like the more things change, the more they, the, the central, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you're saying the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm -hmm. um, your book, March, is dealing with civil rights. Right now, we're kind of dealing with those issues again in politics. What's it like to work on that book while at the same time seeing this craziness in politics in the world? That's that's kind of that's like thirty percent of our headspace the whole time we're working on it. Uh, the first book we sort of did without any real idea of what the potential scope or scale of the books would be or could be even. Yeah. Uh, and once once we were going into making book two, uh, we then there was a shift where we recognized that there we had to consider the readership of the book, which was something I've always actively resisted <laughs> like I make my book 
with the voice I'm going to use and I don't consider who might be reading it or why or what information they might need. Uh, and I realized that I was wrong in doing that. <laughs> Once I recognized that, you know, like certain things, especially growing up as a Southerner with baby boomer parents who were Southerners, I had this basic working knowledge of the civil rights movement. I'm very basic, but you know, like, what I'm getting at is once March Book One came out, and I realized that we had actually had a dis like I had initiated a discussion while I was drawing it about the necessity of fleshing out too much about Rosa Parks. <laughs> you know, I was like, because everybody knows, you know, these, a lot of these basic tenets, these basic key figures, and then I realized that when you know, like I don't, it's not like I hang out with the 12 to 18 year old range very much. <laughs> but, you know, one, the more I become exposed to teenagers and, and preteens, especially with March and especially, especially now as a parent, uh, I, I recognize that there is no way I can have a fair expectation that even fundamental figures like Rosa Parks have information that is going to be carried on to every young person from every parent or from every teacher. Then, you know, moving through the second and into the third book, I feel like a third of our energy is spent as I'm drawing and as Andrew and Lee are editing and as we're all kind of rewriting and reconfiguring it in real time. We're also, the three of us and Congressman Lewis are responding to the world around us, the political and cultural climate, and we're recognizing that there are these echoes and reverberations that are happening within the book. And while trying not to pin the book in a, you know, in its time too much, um, trying to allow those moments to illuminate themselves. Um, a lot of it was weird because uh, the the framing device for the entire trilogy has to do with the first presidential inauguration of Barack Obama. And going into the book, you know, I was very, I was very concerned that it would be read, especially because the co-writer is a sitting politician, you know, that it would be read as fluffier than it was intended to be simply because he was a sitting president. There were positive, there were positive feelings towards him. Uh, but I was sort of blind to the fact I, I was sort of, I was allowing a sheen to form over my own memories that, it, that the framing device is not about, uh, how, our society or its constituents feel about the administration or, or the time. In fact, it was about remembering that on that one day at that moment, there was something crackling in the air. You know, remembering like crying on a couch in Indiana that this was something that we were witnessing, that this was a shift occurring in our culture and we we're moving through a threshold. Uh, and we've had a lot of discussion because like in the third book, there's a little a little note we wanted to drop in that one that President Obama's first act was to sign was to note the day as a national day of healing and reconciliation, and then I think Andrew pointed out he's like he's like every president has done that for like the last <laughs> thirty years he's like he's like we don't need to do that it's like it's just an empty gesture right but then Lee was like exactly he's like if if it rings hollow and empty especially thinking through it in 2016 terms, then we, maybe we've done our job. So we, we sort of reworked the phrasing of it to allow both sides to exist, to let the, to let the irony exist uh, and let sort of the gestural existence of the Day of Reconciliation exist, uh, but to sort of try to, try to take it out of 
being stuck in thinking of it in 2016 terms so that we can think about it in 2036 terms. Yes. yes. Uh, we just got, we're about, what, 10 minutes left? We're, we just wow. got the 10 minute warning. This went quick. Yeah. We could do this for another hour. <laughs> yeah. Can we, can we do this for another hour? <laughs> oh, shit. Um, do any of you guys have questions that you'd like to ask these guys? Yeah, you, sir. Uh, I'm curious, uh, for those of you who work on both nonfiction and fiction, what's it, how is constructing a narrative different between, um, you know, the two between the two genres? I mean, it, yeah. What, what are the differences? I'd say that it's, it's pretty much the same, like in a lot of ways, because I mean, it's just like Rock said. It's like this. You're telling. It's not. It's not like, you know, like if you have a kid, like Bass Reeves is a character. But he's also a real person, so he still has to do the exact same things that a character does in a story to actually move the story along and to sort of work. It's just that those things have to be, you know, based around real events. You know, I just, I'm not just making it up. I'm not just saying, you know, oh, and then a, you know, a giant mechanical hand came down. You know, it's like you actually have to put in. It's like, oh, you know, there was a trial where he was, you know, he shot his cook by accident. And they tried to put him in jail because of it. So like, that's a thing. You know? Yeah, and I think that like, you know, when you look at stuff that's like nonfiction or like memoir that maybe isn't that isn't as successful as it could be i feel like sometimes the reason is that the person who's put it together has kind of said like oh well this is a real thing so i just am gonna yeah. put it down the way it is and yeah. and i'm done like you know that that sort of throwing the idea out the window that like a story is something that to be engaging has to have a beginning and a middle and an end and it has to have a protagonist and if you look at people who are really good at um you know, memoir and people who are really good at nonfiction narratives of whatever type, you know, comics or film or, or, you know, prose or whatever, they know how to like move things around, even sometimes chronologically to move things around, to put, to put a big reveal maybe that yeah. took place at the beginning and they put it at the end, you know, like when you find out like why the main character has been on this quest for whatever in real life, maybe they put that at the end, they put that at the, you know, maybe that's the climax of act two, you know, and like, I feel like there's, there's a temptation to like, when you're dealing with something that's true, to say like, well, now I don't have to worry about story structure. You know, I don't have to worry can about character how, development. You know, can and you it's imagine like, how boring Lincoln would have been if it was just a direct telling? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you see some of these like Hollywood biopics, you know, that are just like watching paint dry. Usually, it's because what they've done is it's like it's, it start starts with the baby coming out, and, like, <laughs> and then like then the guy dies, and then the credits roll. Totally. You don't need all that. You need to find like, find the story. Yeah, find like what is you know when you, when you talk about character, it's like what is character? Character is like what someone does when they have to make a decision under pressure. You know, and like that's what reveals character. And it doesn't matter whether it's a real person or a fictional character. And it's like if you're gonna do a biography. Find that moment, you know. Find that moment where they're where they're, your person has got everything under pressure. You know, they, everything is falling apart, and they have to make a decision. You know, put that at the end of Act Two, and I don't care what happens when they're you know twelve years old or what happens when they're ninety two. You know, you put that there. You know, like just yeah, it's you, like you're moving pieces around whatever you do. You know? the, 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 the movie that always strikes me that way is The Aviator. It's oh, like. Sorry. <laughs> trillion years long it's like just take one aspect of that could have been one movie and have been a great story i always think feel that it's like you're looking at all these series of events that just happened i mean in many ways you just you're just like life is like a random series of events all this it's all affected by whatever and this is just what happened but in all that and it's like you can find it in anybody like anybody sitting out here you know like any human, like the most boring person you can think of, you know, in their life story, 
is like the most like has every element of story in it from from sadness happiness up and down tragedy it all yeah, next time somebody tells you a funny story at a bar or something, pay attention because like what makes it funny and not just like ramblings is exactly that. You know, yeah. it has the same elements that like a good short story has. You know, it's not just kind of a rambling chronology of things. Right, it know? builds to a crescendo and then you're laughing at the end, and then they're all like, and then he died. You know, there's like a little addendum at the end. Yeah, so there's no like there's no real significant difference between stories that are fiction and stories that are um that are you know non-fiction it's just like you know you just you have to construct them because like i said lincoln could be a really boring story if you just kind of said and then they went in and some people fought about the bill and there was a motion to suppress and there was a motion carried and the eyes have like really Abraham like, Lincoln the Phantom Menace yeah <laughs> <laughs> a lot of talking about legislation yeah. Yeah. On, on that tip I would just I would just say that I think uh, to think of nonfiction and fiction in terms of in terms of sculpture bear with me yeah. I'm just kind of pulling this out of my ass but I, I, I think this might be the, the difference to, to sort of condense all of this uh, I feel like making a story out of nonfiction is like getting the marble block if you're Michelangelo or whatever and you see the narrative thread that's within it it's a matter of finding what the actual compelling narrative thread is and slowly chipping away the parts that are not part of the narrative right, thread right. constructing fiction at least in the way that I do it has to do with taking clay or wood or whatever and you're taking components which you're, you're building and creating separately, and then you see how they connect. Right. And you're sort of building from the ground up instead of building inward. Right. I could give you all a lecture on the difference between non-objective and objective sculpture if you want. <laughs> I could do that. I gotta get back to my table, man. <laughs> Any other questions before we get kicked out of here? And you guys are all here all weekend long. We are here today. Um, what books are you guys here uh, promoting this weekend? Um, March, and you don't say, I guess. Hell yeah. Oyster War, of course. Excellent book. Strange Fruit and Tales of the Talented Ten. Oh. Uh, I have my Andre the Giant book, and I have a new book that's a fake biography, kind of, <laughs> of a very Trump-like character. And then when I made this story, it made this up like in August. I swear I didn't think he would be in the news anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like... Maybe stepping him. Uh, yeah, yeah. You won the rest of the Republican. <laughs> and then you have Tetris so, coming out yeah, in October. Tetris coming out in October, and I also have a publisher of Retrofit Comics, and we're running a Kickstarter right now, if you guys uh, know what that is. We definitely need any uh, help we can get there. Hell yeah. Guys, it was a pleasure hanging out and chatting you, with all of you guys. I love all your there. works. Um, Every book is completely different, but it takes, I, I appreciate the way you guys approach, have completely different ways of approaching um, real life subjects and uh, everything you guys have done has been great. So thanks for letting me hang out and chat with you guys oh, for you, 45 thank minutes. Hi buddy, everybody, thank you. All right, buddies. Thanks to everyone over at Dink for helping make this be a fantastic weekend. Uh, thanks to all the guests on this panel, Joel Christian Gill, Box Brown, Ben Tao, Nate Powell, all great guys, all great works. Make sure you stop by mostlyharmlesspodcast.com where I will have links to each one of their Twitter profiles, uh, their web pages, and how you can find their most current works. 
all great, great solid dudes. I'm sorry to Ben Toll and uh, Joel Christian Gill for not getting back to them to do a one-on-one interview though with them, but stay tuned for later in the week. Um, hopefully on Thursday I should have um, my one-on-one interviews with Box Brown, Nate Powell, and a handful of other people I, I hung out with and made an ass out of myself with at, uh, at, at Dink. And uh, please stay tuned. I've got a couple more panels from Dink coming up and some other cool stuff in the works. we got some stuff coming up. Um, we got some Mostly Harmless Live shows going on at Mutiny Information Cafe. And then um, it looks like we got some stuff in the works for uh, Denver Comic-Con. We'll see what happens there, buddy. So uh, visit MostlyHarmlessPodcast.com. Subscribe to the email list. Like us on iTunes. Follow us on Tumblr. Follow us everywhere. You know, I'm, I'm everywhere. I'm annoying the crap out of you everywhere on the internet. So, all right, buddies, we'll see you in the funny pages. You take care now.